Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. He comes to us from the UK. His name is Paul Embury. His last name is spelled E-M-B-E-R-Y. And he published a book in November 2020. Title of the book is Despised, Why the Modern Left Loathes the Working Class. And right now in the US, it has 444 five-star reviews. I've read the book in its entirety. Really well-written fascinating book from his perspective uh, from the UK, but he can talk more about that. So Paul Embry, are you there? Good to be with you. Awesome. Well, thanks for agreeing to the interview. You have a kind of a background in the left or the labor of the UK. Can you talk about kind of your background and how you grew up in kind of, uh, you used the Barking and Dagenham, which are kind of Easter of London for people in the US, just so they know that they might reference that. But can you talk about your lifestyle growing up there and how things have changed and what led you to write this book? Yeah, so I, I grew up, as you said, in the London borough of Barking and Dagenham uh, in East London, very much a, a working class area, very much a blue collar community, very much saw uh, the Labour Party as the vehicle by which um, they could advance their own material and economic interests, the party that, that spoke for them. Um, like many working class communities throughout the UK, actually, um, returned Labour MPs, members of parliament and local councillors at, at election time. Um, and whilst there were always some working class conservative voters, um, the Conservative Party, large C conservative, um, they were in a minority really in, in working class constituencies such as, as mine. Um, and it was a very stable community. It wasn't particularly affluent, but there were good employment levels and there was very much a, a sense of community. People shared a similar culture, a similar background, um, had similar economic status. Um, and I uh, became uh, an active member of the, the trade union movement in Britain labor unions to, to you in the US, of course, uh, at about 16 years of age. I've been an active member of the labor movement in, in Britain ever since. Been a member of the Labour Party in Britain for about the last 27 years, the best part of the last 27 years. Um, and, and so my politics, really, and, and what, I, what I believe is very much informed by that background, um, by growing up in a working class area and, and being exposed to those working class values, uh, there were, I mean, one of the things that was famous about Dagenham was the, was the Ford Motor Plant. In fact, there was a, a feature film made about it a few years ago called Made in Dagenham. And that probably gives you an insight, really, as to, as to the community. Steady, stable, blue-collar, working-class, sense of community, sense of belonging. Um, and, you know, as I said, very much look towards the, the labour movement historically to, to speak on their behalf. So that's uh, that's really the background to, to, to much of what I stand for and much of what I argue for. And can you define what your position of what the working class is? Because I think that definition is very important. Yeah, I, I mean, I, and I don't think there is a single definition that everybody could possibly agree on. Um, you know, some people on the left argue that it applies to anybody who's forced to sell their labor power in order to survive. Um, other people argue that you know certain certain people in certain positions, supervisory or managerial positions, couldn't possibly be part of the working class, or if they take a holiday abroad, or if they drive a nice car. 
Um, so, so there are lots of different definitions. I, I, I tend to, to look at the working class as the, the type of people that I grew up with, really, the, the community um, that I grew up in, the people who do, if you like, the, the, you know, the more physically challenging jobs in terms of manual labour and the people who generally earn lower wages, uh, the people who, who don't have much in terms of wealth or assets other than you know perhaps their, their own modest home or a few savings put by people who live in the, the grittier uh, parts of our country, um, you know some of the tougher parts of our cities, provincial Britain, small town Britain, that kind of thing, people who often work in blue collar industries. So, so I, you know, I, I argue in the book that I, I think even if we don't necessarily always agree on a very strict scientific definition of what working class means, um, I think most people have, have got a fair idea, and, and that's my that's my kind of unscientific um, definition of working class, if you like. Right. So you kind of came from the working class background. But you've lived through two very important events. I think you started out in your introduction. One is Brexit and one is what happened December 12, 2019. Can you lay the groundwork about these kind of huge tectonic plate shifts that occurred in the UK? Yeah, I mean, the whole Brexit thing was uh, an earthquake in British politics, which many people just didn't see coming um, because quite simply they hadn't been speaking to ordinary voters enough they hadn't been going into those working class areas those working class towns enough and, and speaking to local people and it was something really that had been brewing for for a very long time because there were many millions of people in britain um, who felt completely disconnected from the political system and felt that the political class just didn't really care about them and didn't really understand them and worse than that actually loathed them despised them hence the, the name of the book um, and arguably the left in britain um, as i say i, I say this as a, a proud and long-standing member of the labor movement in britain arguably the left exhibited those traits more than others on the political spectrum the very people who you know, they were created to represent and speak for, they ended up in many cases despising. Um, and that's that's because this disconnect had been brewing. Um, I, I trace it back to probably the end of the 1980s, certainly the disconnect between the Labour movement in Britain and working class voters in Britain, um, where the, the, the Labour Party in particular, the British Labour Party around that time, um, started, to, started to go through something of a transformation. Uh, and it was becoming very much more middle class in its demographic, um, very much more based in uh, our, our fashionable cities. It had a very metropolitan view of the world. Um, it was becoming increasingly liberal in a social and economic sense um, and very much dominated by um, the interests of graduates and the priorities of graduates, for example, and, and became this party of urban liberals in such a way where the working class element of the Labour Party started to, to, to be hollowed out effectively. And the thing about the Labour Party, which has been in existence now for, for you know, well over 100 years, is it was always really a, a coalition. Um, it was a historical compromise between, on the one hand, the, the, the blue collar working class element, but also a layer of more middle class, liberal, white collar, voters and activists um, who believed in 
Labour values wanted to see a fairer, more just economy and society and so on. And the Labour Party was actually always at its most successful when it was able to hold that coalition together. The problem is that over the last 30 years, that coalition has become completely broken and the, the, the middle class liberal element came to dominate and the working class blue collar element was essentially elbowed aside. And the, the, the political priorities of the Labour Party um, became very much focused on, you know, what you might call more, more middle class liberal priorities than um, working class priorities. Now, in the and, and I say in the book that in the first decade of this century, that was a very pivotal, I think, decade in, in the relationship between the working class and the, the Labour Party. And in fact, the working class and the political class generally, because around this time, the, the Conservative Party itself had very much begun to adopt very similar kind of centrist, as they call them, middle class liberal values. And in fact, the guy who took over the, the Conservative Party in 2005, David Cameron, was largely indistinguishable from, from Tony Blair politically. And the reason I say that that decade, I think, was pivotal is, is we, we began to see very significant change in working class communities in Britain in that decade as a result of the largely the emergence of the new global market. So we started to see very significant deindustrialization. We saw thousands of blue collar jobs and production shipped abroad. In my own community of Barking and Dagenham, the local Ford Motor plant was became a shell really of its former self and jobs were shipped abroad. Um, you had the rise of the, the gig economy, uh, as we as we call it. And at the same time as this very rapid deindustrialization was taking place, there was also a very rapid demographic change that was taking place as a result of the new global market, as a result of free movement in the European Union and, and so on. And that was resulting in very rapid and large scale demographic change in working class communities. And frankly, that caused a very deep sense of bewilderment and disorientation. Um, and you know, people started to abandon the Labour Party. Millions of working class voters, slowly at first, began to either stop voting completely, they just abstained in elections, or they, they started to vote for, for smaller populist parties. Um, and that, I think, so when you then fast forward to, to Brexit, the EU referendum in 2016, much of why that happened, in my view, is traceable to, to that disconnect that emerged over the last 30 years, but particularly in the first decade of this century, people looked at the political class and they thought, there's not much difference between any of you. You don't really look like me. You don't sound like me. You don't speak my priorities. And therefore, why should I stop voting? Why should I continue voting for you? And then suddenly in 2016, they were given this opportunity. They were given this, it was effectively the same as being given a gun with one bullet and being told, you know, you can fire this missile and really shake up the political system. And they chose to do it. And they, when they saw the whole of the political establishment urging them to, 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 to vote to remain in the European Union, they suddenly thought, well, you are the people who are responsible for my predicament. You've, you've treated me like trash for the last 15 or 20 years. You've called me racist and bigoted just because I've expressed legitimate concerns about changes in my community, about deindustrialization, rapid demographic change. Here you go, take that. Uh, and it did, it fired a missile through the political system in Britain. And it, it was the reaction, I think, of millions of voters who have been treated with contempt by that political establishment. Uh, and they saw it very much as payback. Right. And the, the history of the Labour Party really was working class, blue collar manufacturing. I think you said in your book, the manufacturing output of the UK dropped from 30 percent 
to 10%. That's a steep decline. So that whole change took place. And so then you saw like even your hometown, you say it's totally changed. And while I was reading your book too, from somebody from the States, it's almost like you could change the names of the towns and the cities and it would be just like the US. Like you got people from all over the place. But the EU, just for people who don't know, allowed free movement of people anywhere in the EU that they could. So they could just move wherever they wanted. So you had whole groups like, I mean, half of Poland moved to the UK or something like that. I think that's an exaggeration. A significant, a lot of people moved to the UK. So you had the people living there who have this culture, who have a continuity of themselves, who know their family and their adults and all that got dispersed. So the comfort of growing up, as you said, a fourth generation in one city, a lot of that was displaced, right? So you're not alone. There's a, uh, enough. And you also show in your book that a lot of the labor were actually kind of conservative in their cultural sensibilities, which I think a lot of people overlook. And would you agree with that in the UK that they overlook kind of the cultural conservatism of the Labour Party? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's certainly true that there has always been a, a very strong thread of what you would call small C conservatism running through working class communities in Britain. They, they have a very strong sense of, of place and of belonging and family and community, um, and they have a very communitarian outlook on life. And I think that's, I think that's often the case in places and communities that are less affluent and their horizons are not as wide and not as broad and they don't often have the opportunities that more affluent middle-class graduate types might have in the way of work and travel and that kind of thing. Um, that sense of place and sense of rootedness and community takes on much more significance, uh, I think, in communities like that. And these people saw saw their sense of place violated by by what was and that sense of belonging violated by what was happening in, in their communities and they were they were, were dismissed as racists and bigots and xenophobes and in fact it wasn't racism or bigotry or xenophobia it was simply a sense of disorientation and bewilderment at how very rapid changes were, were whipping through a community that previously had been had been fairly settled and I think that in many respects, the tragic thing about that is, is immigration in the 1990s in Britain had, had almost become a non-issue politically. Um, we, we'd had big problems in the, the 1960s and 1970s. We'd had the rise of a far-right national part, a far-right uh, racist party called the National Front, who, whilst they never really achieved much electorally, did put people on the streets and they marched through communities with, with, um, with high, higher numbers of immigrants. Uh, and there were riots on the streets on some occasions. And, and we'd really very much moved on from that. And, and as I said, it was almost by the 1990s, um, we'd become a real tolerant country um, and immigration wasn't really an issue. But then all of a sudden, with those very rapid changes that I talked about in the first decade of this century in terms of the, the changes uh, as a result of the, the new global market, it suddenly did become an issue again. And that was in large part because of the free movement rules of the, the European Union, which, as you said rightly, effectively allows workers from any member state in the European Union to, to work in any other member state of their choosing. and. Of course, the, and, and you touched on Poland, and, and what tends to happen, and I think we've seen it with European Union free movement, is if you have a system of free movement between highly diverse economies, 
then the traffic will invariably be more in one way than it will in the other. It will be much more from the low wage economies to the higher wage economies than the other than the other way around. So, so Britain as a higher wage economy suddenly saw a very big increase in, in the number of foreign workers coming here. And of course, not many British workers were going to lower wage economies in, in Eastern Europe. So, so what that does, of course, aside from some of the social pressures that, that, and tensions that, that I, I, I've explained, it also creates, I think, economic tensions as well. So you will have an oversupply of labour in certain industries such as hospitality, retail, construction, etc. And that can have an impact in terms of pushing down wages. Um, but the, the other problem, which often people don't, don't even notice with uh, free movement, is it has a real profound impact on the on, on the, the parent countries as well, not just the host country, but the parent company, uh, the country. So, so the countries that people are leaving are often suddenly denuded of, of their labor. So for example, the Romanian health service recently went through a crisis because so many thousands of its doctors, once they entered the EU, decided to up sticks and, and, and move to, to higher wage economies in Western Europe, Latvia, there's another example of effectively had a depopulation crisis as a result of so many of its, of its workers leaving. So these are very real issues of concern that deserve a proper serious debate and are often dismissed largely, I have to say, by my colleagues on the left as the, 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 the kind of the warnings of racists and bigots and, you know, we shouldn't pander to them, we shouldn't cave into them. Well, we've seen what happens in Britain. We've seen what happens when you don't take on board people's concerns. Uh, you get a big political explosion, and that's something that the political class are now having to deal with. Having to deal with. Well, it's the same thing here. And you talk about in your book how social services get stressed, too, by a population that wasn't accounted for. Like here, doctors and emergency rooms are filled with people. I mean, it's really crazy how in the United States, so you can see the same issue about migration, illegal immigration, depression of wages, open borders. Um, so you see that kind of same thing in the UK and the response there. I mean, we had our own kind of response, Donald Trump, uh, as long as he lasted, I think was very, under similar things that happened in the UK. And you also talk about kind of the same thing that is happening in the US as the UK is this kind of, you call it liberal wokedom, where the free speech and communication and dialogue are not allowed like you can get and you cite so many examples of people whose lives have been ruined and the same thing's happening here can you talk about the effect of that kind of mentality on debate and change and upon really the labor uh the left or the labor class yeah i mean it's 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 been fascinating in many respects the the, the left in britain which you know, traditionally, um, historically, had always been very much in favour of freedom of, of speech and, uh, you know, articulating ideas that challenged establishment thinking and took on conventional wisdom, um, has suddenly become uh, a, a body of people that believes rigidly in one point of view on important topics and tries to enforce this conformism in the most authoritarian way uh, and it is very disturbing actually um, that nowadays if you are somebody who particularly if you hold a position of any uh, of any public note or if you are somebody of uh, some degree of importance in terms of your professional career 
if you say the wrong thing, if you articulate the wrong view, um, then you will be attacked and you will find that large numbers of people, often on the left, are calling for you to be sacked, are calling for people to boycott you, um, and are quite happy to see your, your livelihood destroyed. Uh, and that's something really that needs to be challenged. And there's an awful, there's an awful lot of cowardice, I have to say, uh, right across the political spectrum and across the media. Because in my view, the only way that we're going to, to challenge this demand for conformism um, is for people to, to face these people down. They're, they actually represent a minority, but they're treated as if they represent a majority view, and they really don't. Um, and they, they're getting away, frankly, with silencing people and with, with shutting down debate. And you know, I understand it's something that, that something similar is happening in the in the US as well. And it's, I think, probably become worse with the advent of social media. So we see, you know, Twitter storms and Twitter pylons against anybody uh, who, who expresses an unfashionable political or moral opinion. But as I argue in the book, progress ever only ever comes about through people challenging establishment thinking. Uh, and that's something that should be encouraged. And instead of that, we have in Britain, we have safe spaces, we have a great de degree of groupthink, we have echo chambers, even in universities now we have safe spaces. Uh, I mean, universities should be cauldrons of debate where students should be exposed to all different kind of competing views and, and ideas. Um, but, but often now they hear one particular view and, and it's almost as if we're told that, you know, causing offence is itself an offence, even though even though all you've done is expressed your own political view. If you've caused offence, then you shouldn't do that again and you should be shut down. And in fact, of course, nobody has the right to not be offended. Uh, I'm not suggesting, I've never suggested that we should seek to gratuitously offend people with our views. Of course not. But if you express a genuine view and someone happens to be offended by that, then the problem is with the person being offended, not with the person who's expressed the view. But we're almost at a situation now in Britain where if you say I'm offended, that's almost regarded as the clincher in debate. Uh, that's enough to, to close the debate down. And whereas once upon a time we would say, I disagree with you, and we would set out the reasons why, often we say now, you mustn't say that. So, so it's a suffocating, stifling uh, atmosphere at the moment in terms of uh, debate, and uh, and it's not uh, it's not something that um, that should be allowed to continue. Right, and you mentioned in your book even the word hate now. So some things are interpreted as hate. So even debate, dialogue, or you know, like something offensive can be termed hate, and there you're then you're actually under a statute. You say you mentioned like three or four statutes that have been passed in the UK in the last two decades that really tell, tell that story. And you tell some horror stories about like a woman said, I think there's only two sex, sexes and the cops showed up at her house. I mean, and, and these, these are, these are only the stories we hear about through the media. Uh, and you know, one has to wonder how many of these types of incidents have, have happened that people don't hear about. I mean, a good example, actually, two or three days ago, um, somebody in a, in a, in a town in the County of Hampshire in England, placed a poster on a on a lamppost um, which said it's okay to be white, uh, which I think was probably a reaction to the fact that we've had this debate as you had had in the US about white supremacy and white privilege and white people are constantly being told to, to check their privilege and you know with the BLM movement some of this stuff has, has intensified. 
Uh, well, that poster was was put on a lamppost, and the the local police constabulary, constabulary Hampshire Police, are now investigating that as a hate crime. Um, the local authority removed the, the poster, and it's now being investigated as a hate crime. And this is this is the kind of position we're at um, that that expressing views which not so long ago would have been regarded as perfectly mainstream and uncontroversial are now being regarded as hate views. Um, and the police, I have to say, seem to devote a wholly disproportionate amount of time to some of this stuff. You, you will see vast police resources often devoted to, to taking up complaints about people who believe they've been offended on social media. Right. Uh, and knocking up doors because you know somebody has said something that another person has, has regarded as offensive. Whilst the, the, the ordinary crimes that really affect people and which they really want the police to deal with, such as burglary and antisocial behaviour and, and car robbery, etc., are often just not being dealt with properly. Um, so, so yes, this whole scenario of, of hate really has, has enveloped us in the UK in such a degree that it really is stifling free, free thought. And it's, it's fascinating, isn't it? Because the very same people who believe in diversity in every area of life, um, you know, constantly banging the drum for diversity, when it comes to diversity of thought, um, then all of a sudden they're not in favour of it. There's, uh, my, my friend, Maurice Glasman, a, a Labour peer in the UK, says there's none so intolerant as those who preach tolerance. And uh, I think that's probably right. I think he's right. I think he's right. And you, I mean, you talk about this guy, Dank, whose dog made some kind of Hitler salute. He actually became famous over here for being persecuted. Didn't they try to throw him in jail? Well, they, yeah, I mean, he was he was uh, prosecuted for it. Um, I, I, I don't think he, he, I don't think he went to jail. No, but, he, but I'm sure they, I'm sure some people would have liked to see him in jail. But he was he was prosecuted and I think convicted uh, of um whatever the, the particular crime was they laid at his feet. And what he was doing was very, very clearly a joke. Now, okay, some people might say it was a tasteless joke. Some people may have found it unfunny. And of course, that's entirely fair comment. People don't have to like jokes. Um, but it was pretty clear that this person wasn't encouraging Nazism. All he'd done is taught his pug dog um, to, to do a Nazi salute, and he put it on YouTube. Um, and some people found it funny and some people didn't. But the, the, the point is here, who's the arbitrator? Who decides what's funny and what isn't? I mean, some of our most famous stand-up comedians in, in Britain uh, often use the most caustic humour uh, and what you might call unpolitically correct humour when they're on stage in front of thousands of people. Um, I don't think we're at the stage yet where a police officer would march onto the stage and arrest the person. But it seems that if you're if you're just you know not quite so famous and you do something similar on YouTube, then they will come knocking at your door. Uh, so that that's so that's an example of the type of atmosphere that, that exists at the moment. Right, a lot of self censorship. People are afraid to talk. You don't want to be labeled a white supremacist or racist for saying I you know. I want to have a, my culture or something like that. Um, but so you, as part of that kind of like wanting to maintain kind of the left's traditions, you believe kind of in a more solidified nation state, correct? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I believe, I mean, I'm certain, I wouldn't describe myself as a nationalist, um, but I do believe that the nation state has proven to be the best form of government at its upper limit. 
um, I believe that it's the, the unit within which people are more likely to be generous through their, you know, through paying taxes, for example. Um, I, I believe that it's the best form of, of democracy, as I say, at that level. Um, and I think when you try to, to go beyond it and you try to impose a supranational institution such as the, the European Union, the elasticity, if you like, of, of democracy starts to, to, to stretch and sometimes break. And whereas I think people who feel that they are part of a single political and economic and social and cultural unit are willing to often pay taxation in order to um, to provide assistance or support to more disadvantaged areas in their country that, that need regeneration um, I think you find it harder to to achieve that sentiment um, the the wider you go and the more people and the more countries you you sort of throw into the mix and social solidarity I think is hugely hugely important in life and I think the the nation state is uh, a good conduit of, of social solidarity uh, and even even within the nation state if you if you have too diverse a demographic and if you have um, people living in parallel communities who feel they have nothing in common with each other then even within the nation state that elasticity can can start to stretch i mean we have in in britain of course the, the national health service uh, which is very much a, a public body, uh, our, our National Health Service paid out of general taxation and, and free at the point of use for everybody. We have a welfare state, a national welfare state. Things like that and public services generally, I think, depend on a large amount of social solidarity where, where people feel that mutual obligation, that sense of reciprocity to, towards each other. Uh, the minute you start to, to stretch that social solidarity, um, then I think it undermines that social solidarity. And I, I have to say, I think in this in this age of liberal globalisation that we're living in, how we maintain or, or actually restore a sense of social solidarity in our communities, particularly I think our working class communities, which have been um, very much impacted by globalisation and have seen social solidarity undermined, how we restore that, I think, is the key question for us. Yeah, and you you talk about that in your final chapter, what is to be done. So you, you provide solutions. And one of the interesting things in your book was like your critique of diversity, like the axiom is diversity is our strength. But we have a lot of diversity here in the States and people are at each other's throats. I mean, it's it's not, uh, this is not a harmonious society at all. The US is the opposite of harmonious. Um, so. Yeah, there's some lessons to be learned present day in this book. But I mean, one of the things that happened, can you talk about the shift that took place under Boris Johnson? It was a significant shift in 2019, right? It was a, it was a major political realignment in British politics. And it looks like it could last, actually. Um, what we saw in 2019, and this was obviously three years after the Brexit vote, and many of those issues I spoke about earlier in the interview, that, that contributed to that Brexit vote uh, were, were still in existence in 2019 in the, the general election. And what you saw in that election actually were millions of people in uh, Labour, what you would call Labour constituencies up and down the country, um, suddenly voted for the, the, the Conservative Party, the Tory Party, the, the party that traditionally had been seen in those communities as the, the class enemy. As I said earlier, there's always been some working class Tories, but, but most working class people would have associated themselves with the Labour Party. And some towns 
in, in Britain, particularly what you might call post-industrial Britain, in, for example, the north of England and the, the Midlands of England, um, had been labour since time immemorial. Uh, they were called the Red Wall because they were so, so labour. Um, and suddenly these places just fell to the Tories and it was Labour's worst general election result since 1935. Uh, and as I said, places that previously would not have dreamed of voting Tories started to, to do it. And so the Conservatives won the election with uh, an 80 seat majority, which, you know, if you're not familiar, uh, if, you, if your listeners are not familiar with the British parliamentary system is a very, very significant and sizable victory in a general election. Uh, and it was, it was certainly because, in, in part, because of the Brexit issue. So what we had after the vote for Brexit in 2016, we had effectively had three years where there was political chaos. And that was largely as a result of significant parts of the establishment in Parliament and beyond, trying to do everything they could to stop that vote from being implemented, to try to force the British public to vote again in a second referendum. And the British public, particularly people who had voted to leave the European Union, but not exclusively, I mean, lots of people who had voted to, to remain in the European Union as well, were becoming increasingly angry uh, at, the, at the chaos that never seemed to be ending. And so when Boris Johnson was elected as leader of the Conservative Party, um, and you know, a few months later um, called an election and, and promised to, to get Brexit done, it was effectively a referendum on whether or not we were going to go ahead with Brexit or whether we were going to cave into those forces demanding a second referendum. And it was a clear and decisive result. And those Labour working class communities, which had voted very heavily for Brexit, for all the reasons I said before, as I said, they threw their lot in with the Conservative Party. I mean, it wasn't just about Brexit. Labour had a leader at the time, Jeremy Corbyn, who many people didn't regard as being particularly electable. And, and you had that storm brewing that I've talked about, um, the disconnect between the Labour Party and the working class in Britain had, had been going on for many years and, and getting worse. So it was a culmination of all of those things, really. And, and the thing, I think the danger now for the Labour Party, and I say this as, as a member of the Labour Party and as a Labour activist, is I don't know that Labour can ever win those people back because that taboo of voting for the Conservative Party has now been broken. And like any taboos, once it's broken, people are not fearful about doing it again. So, so Labour has got a real difficult job on its hands to win those people back. And the position it finds itself in now, which is potentially heading for, uh, for electoral irrelevance, uh, is entirely self-inflicted for all the reasons I said. Right. So it's interesting. And did the Conservatives kind of try to present Johnson as a populist, too? Is that what kind of draw people over? Because that's what they did here um, under Trump was this so-called populism. Do you think that the Labour Party's uh, ideas will be kind of will they be treated better by the Conservatives or just as as what happened in the past? Do you think the Conservatives will actually kind of look at some of their new voters and uh, respect their political aims? It's, it's interesting because I think that the Conservatives' message, messaging over the last two years uh, going into that general election and since has, has been quite clever. Uh, certainly the Get Brexit Done, which was effectively their main slogan for that general election in 2019, Get Brexit Done, uh, that was a very powerful slogan uh, and I think made, made a real impact. Um, they have also 
gone through a bit of a transformation themselves in the sense that they are speaking much more now uh, about what they call the levelling up agenda. So they're, they're looking at Britain's working class communities, they've seen the impact of globalisation in these communities. Uh, and I have to say, not just the impact of globalisation, but even if you go back to the 1980s in Britain, which was really the Thatcher decade here in Britain, the Margaret Thatcher decade, and it was it was a very interesting period because she until until she came in effectively until you know the mid 70s just before she arrived on the scene as prime minister there had been in britain what was called the post-war consensus where both the major parties labor and the conservative party effectively took it in terms to to govern um, but had a very similar similar agenda in terms of um, they both believed, for example, in the mixed economy. They both believed in uh, a role for government in intervening in the economy, strong public services, trade union rights, a welfare state, and so on. And Margaret Thatcher pretty much smashed up that consensus, and she took a very, a very much adopted the, the economic policies of the likes of Milton Friedman and, and Frederick Hayek, uh, which were rolling back the frontiers of the state, handing everything over to the market, letting the privateers run everything, uh, low tax, low regulation, etc. And we, we really saw a, a legacy of that in the form of um, growing inequality, uh, a whole underclass of people being created in Britain, public services, starved of cash, um, high unemployment, etc. And I think elements of the Conservative Party don't particularly uh, want to return to that, that Thatcher decade and probably realise that if they were to adopt a similar uh, posture again, that wouldn't go down in working class communities, which are crying out for investment and regeneration. But as to whether or not they believe it, I have to say I'm very sceptical. I don't think they really do. I think they're still in hock to the market in many respects. Um, and for all they say about levelling up and providing investment uh, and creating jobs in working class communities, uh, I'm very, very sceptical as to whether or not they'll, they'll deliver it. But there's no question their messaging uh, has been very clever and that has allowed them to, to win over those communities in very large numbers. Right. Really remarkable that red wall collapses. Do you mind taking a few questions before we wrap it up? Sure. There's a question from Jolly. She says, or he says, do you think the swing away from traditionally labor constituencies to Tory had anything to do with perceived, quote, diversity issues and not wanting to offend some immigrant populations, re things like the events at Rotherham? Well, the, the events at Rotherham uh, have been interesting, but haven't received much uh, coverage in the mainstream British media. Um, effectively, um, I won't necessarily go into detail on it, but there was, uh, there was a history of, of sexual abuse in recent years of young white girls in Rotherham, uh, which was carried out largely by uh, men from uh, the Muslim community. Um, and that created uh, a lot of anger locally. Um, it raised whole questions locally about issues such as immigration and multiculturalism and how we address issues such as that when you know you have young kids being sexually abused in that way um so so that's what the that's what the questioner is talking about there but i mean more more broadly and that i guess ties into the more broader debate about multiculturalism um and whether or not it's it's worked as effectively as people would have liked um the broad debate about immigration i think we've handled it all very badly in britain i think what we've done is we've been very very poor 
at integrating people. I think we've been so anxious not to offend new arrivals, not to offend immigrant communities that we've effectively stood back and said, you know, get on with it. We won't really encourage you to speak English. We won't encourage you to integrate into your local community. You have local councils now, which often translate documentation into a whole range of different languages because they're, they're, they're anxious about just using English in case anybody complains. Um, and I think what that's done actually is, is, is in kind of, we've, we've, we've done multiculturalism in a way in Britain where we've actively promoted separateness and, and difference. Uh, and that, not surprisingly, has pushed people apart and pushed communities apart instead of saying to people, look, you know, you're here, you're very welcome, we're, we're happy to have you. This is how we do things. This is our culture. And of course, we absolutely defend the right of people as individuals to worship the God they choose, to eat the food they choose, to wear the clothes they wish to wear. Um, but actually, you have to do your best as well, I think, to create a, 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 as, as deep cultural bonds right across the country as you can. And we've been we've been terrible at that. And, and it's become the whole issue of immigration and multiculturalism as a result of that has become a running sore in British society when it when it needn't have been that way. And it's interesting, you counterpoise the identity politics with the concept of the melting pot. And here in the States, we used to have cartoons as kids that the US was a great melting pot and everybody mixed, and that's all gone here too. So it seems like that's just the same ideology is being operating in both countries in the UK, but a really excellent book and a, a great talk. Thanks so much for your time. Again, the title of the book, one more thing though, Paul, is there a website for you or where can people reach out to you, social media? Do you have any questions? Still there? Let's see. He's, uh, anyway, the title of the book is Despised, Why the Modern Left Loathes the Working Class, published by Paul Embery, E-M-B-E-R-Y, uh, published November 2020. And here in the U.S., I think it has 444 five-star reviews, so it's very well received. But Paul seems to have locked up. Let me see if he comes back here. Let me see if he has a website. I know this book is available on Amazon, so I'll put the link to his book in Amazon. And uh, yeah, let's see. Let's see if he pops back. Oh, no, he's not connected. All right. Anyway, thanks for listening, guys. Take care. Bye-bye.